Sometimes it just takes time to get the teams to the way of thinking of a corporate or vice versa to get a corporate understand why certain developments still need to be done, but you do already need or want to be involved at the early stage. So I guess a lot of the work is also you know, being a bit of a translator between different worlds, which makes it challenging, but it also makes that you need quite some patience as well sometimes. Cédric Van Neville is a partner at Cubic, an early stage venture fund that invests in the spin-outs of its 16 partners throughout Belgium. Cédric joins us to chat about the fund's origins, why it's a strength to work with teams pre-incorporation, and why Cubic is happy to keep focusing on the Belgian ecosystem rather than expand internationally like some of its peers. He also ponders what makes Belgium such an entrepreneurial country and looks back at his own career, which brought him to Cubic in 2019 after earlier stops in corporate venturing for Beckard, gas transport and storage infrastructure for Fluxus and Boston Consulting Group. My name is Thierry Heles and this is Talking Tech Transfer. <laughs> Cedric, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking with you. To start with, can you give me an overview of Cubic with some headline figures? Yeah, sure. So Cubic, we're actually in the third fund already, meaning that obviously there's been a Cubic 1 and a Cubic 2 as well. Cubic actually originated from a number of different Belgian universities, which came together and tried to bundle forces bundle their internal minor VC funds, I would say, and bundle forces both in having the funds managed independently and also leveraging their own financial means with also public and private means and collecting public and private investors. So the first Cubic Fund actually originated from University of Ghent, Brussels, Antwerp, and then Vito, which is a big knowledge institution or research center here in Belgium. For the second fund, which started five years later, a number of additional universities joined and also a cluster of innovative hospitals. And now recently, earlier this year in March, we launched the third Cubic Fund, again assembling a number of leading Belgian universities like the originating universities of Ghent, Brussels, Antwerp, knowledge institutions and research like Vito and uh, IMEC, a number of universities which already were there in the second fund like the University of Hasselt, Liège, and then also, again, grouping a number of very innovative hospitals. Cubic 1 basically started off as a 40 million fund. Cubic 2 became an almost 60 million fund. And now for the third fund, we had our first closing at 50 million, but obviously have the intention to go for a second or maybe third closing as well. Amazing. Do you have a specific sector focus or is it just anything out of Belgium, out of your partner institutions? It's anything out of our partner institutions, obviously with the VC mindset, so no service-oriented businesses, for example, and always very early stage. So we typically invest the first days or weeks after initial incorporation for most of the investments we do, but across sectors. So deep tech, software, life science, biotech, a bit of all. That leads me on to my next question as well. How do you source deals? Do you work with the teams before they incorporate? Yes, we do. So basically, we have an agreement with all our partner knowledge institutions. So it's broader than just universities. Basically, sit together with the tech transfer offices on a quarterly basis. Have a look at what's in their portfolio, which teams, projects are looking for a potential VC path or potential incorporation. And then we sit together indeed with those teams. I think if you look back at the second fund, sometimes 
we had interactions with those teams 12 to 18 months prior to actual incorporation. So challenging them on the business plan, on their go-to-market strategy, on their IP strategy, trying to help them build a solid investable project and investable company. Do you do that for all your portfolio companies or are there some that you meet later on? It's uh, very much dependent. It's not necessary for us to do so. What we do see is that for a lot of those younger teams, it's very useful for them. It's also useful for us because we get to know the team while working together already. Some of the teams, some of the companies, we see them a bit more late stage because they've developed more internally or because there is maybe an external team that was already working on it or already joined the project team at university prior to the first discussion. That makes sense. Do you have investment rights or rights of first refusal in your partner's spin-outs? We have a preferred partnership in the sense that as we see the deals very early on, for a lot of them, we see the projects before they're actually ready to go to markets, before there's an investment pitch or before the business plan is solid enough to go to investors. Do you invest in line with any ESG criteria or SDGs? If you look at the portfolio we've built, you'll see that most of the companies indeed fit at least a number of ESG criteria or, or the SDGs. I think for us, it's not very difficult to do so. If you look at whatever research is happening within the universities, it is typically driven by a more sustainable future, working towards renewable energy, working towards better health issues or a more equitable society. I think in terms of ESG, typically what we bring is the experience of setting solid governance because it's that early stage we start from scratch. And I think that's where we can add quite some value as well for those companies. If you look at the sustainable development goals, again, that's rather easy for us to comply with them given the research that's actually happening within the universities. This is a fairly big question. (laughs) What are the opportunities in Belgium's ecosystem? It's indeed a fairly big question. I think some of the opportunities in our space, our our sector specifically, there's quite some research happening within the Belgian ecosystem. There are quite some also EU funds or funding that is available to the Belgian universities. So there's quite some output of that research, which can be translated into economically viable companies. I think one of the advantages as well we have in Belgium is also that there's quite a solid ecosystem of clinical trials. A lot of clinical trials are happening here in our university and uh, non-university hospitals, which also gives us quite some access to more life science and medtech type of companies. From the outside, it's always looked like there is a lot of stuff going on in Belgium. You've got obviously Cubic yourself, you've got Theodorus, you've got Emec Expand. Where does this culture come from? Have you always been an entrepreneurial country? That's uh, not an easy question. I think we've always had a lot of different institutions. I think if you compare to other countries, we have more universities that are each doing their own development, less of a top one, top two, top three tier type of universities. I think within the VC landscape, it also translates, having these different universities also translates and having these different funds. I think Cubic is the one fund combining multiple universities and multiple research centers. I think if you look at Expand, for example, they have a very strong focus on the IMEC deals. We also see a number of IMEC deals, but maybe not all of them, and also not all, let's say, the very big deals, which they are more focusing on. Theodorus, Gamma Frisius are very similar to Cubic, but then have a specific partnership with one other Belgian uh, university, whereas we try to combine a number of universities within the fund. Are you planning to stay focused on Belgium 
just because I know, for example, Theodorus is opened an office in Canada as well, which is obviously quite far away, so maybe not that far, but would you expand elsewhere into Europe? At this stage, our focus is primarily in Belgium because we invest that early. We see that having a proximity, being close to the teams, being easily available also for face-to-face meetings makes our and their lives a lot easier sometimes. So I think that the geographical proximity, certainly in the early phases, we consider that as quite important. Venturing into other countries might make sense in the future, but if so, then probably it would be for the nearer opportunities, say south of Netherlands, north of France, rather than venturing across the Atlantic, for example. But at this stage, we primarily have that Belgian focus. Yeah. This is another big question. What are the challenges in Belgium's ecosystem? To be honest, <laughs> it's quite difficult to give a very broad statement on that. I don't think there are a lot of challenges that are very... I don't really have a suitable answer to that, to be honest. There are some quite specific ones, but I wouldn't call them very typical for the Belgian ecosystem in that sense. There's no lack of management or lack of money for your companies. That's, well, I guess there could always be more. <laughs> yeah, there could always be more. And maybe the big corporate VCs don't, we don't have a lot of big big VC funds that have an office in Belgium, for example, that have a geographical proximity. On the other hand, for that early, very early stage, that's maybe not as necessary either. I think in later stages, if companies do well, they do get access to those types of funds as well. Do your companies usually stay in Belgium or do they go elsewhere once they kind of reach the growth stages? So far, in terms of headquarters, all of our companies still are in Belgium. Obviously, they do have a focus to have international business or to do business on an international scale and international level as well. Some of our companies have already done maybe a minor acquisition abroad, set up an office abroad, uh, set up typically sales offices abroad, quite some collaborations with international players as well. But so far, the headquarters have remained in Belgium, although that is not a requirement as such for us. I think it makes sense in the early stages to remain in Belgium, also to keep that link with the university for future development as well. But going forward, we obviously encourage them to go abroad and to reach out for a bigger market than just the Belgian one, because that's uh, <laughs> fairly quickly around in the Belgian market otherwise. Yeah. How easy is it to find investment professionals in Belgium? Given our fund size, we haven't been recruiting very heavily over the last years. We have made some additions to the team. It has not been extremely difficult, I would say, to find people to join our team. We're also quite happy with people who did join our team, obviously. What you do see is that given the, the smaller ecosystem, that there's, there's people, it's a small world, so you typically come across the same people in different deals, sometimes jumping from one fund to another. It makes it easier to get to know uh, or to know most of the players. But yeah, I guess that that's uh, common for a smaller country like Belgium as well. Yeah. Is your staff mostly Belgians then? Well, within the fund, we're a team of five. So within our team, we're all Belgians, yes. If you look at our portfolio companies there, we see that there's quite a mix. Also representative, I guess, for, on the one hand, researchers at the universities, which is also quite an international mix. And then also as companies expand, as companies do go out and do more business internationally, they also attract more international profiles as well. Speaking of the makeup of your portfolio, how does your engagement fare when it comes to women and founders from a minority background? 
I guess we're doing quite well. It's not a metric that we proactively were keeping track of, but when we started our fundraising for the third fund, we sort of made the balance as well. And actually, we're a bit surprised ourselves, but out of the 18 companies in which the second fund invested, six of them are led by women, which for our space, the earlier stage, we see deep tech companies quite often is, I think, quite a good metric. We didn't proactively look for women just to have a good metric on that. On the contrary, but we do see within the researchers community, there's quite a nice ratio of women who are willing to take that leap and to start and found a, a company. So we didn't proactively scout or recruit for to have a good metric there, but by coincidence, we had one. Maybe the fact that our own team is also quite balanced, men women also helps for that. But again, that's just a guess. <laughs> we just see the outcome now, which is quite good given the type of uh, companies in which we invest. You don't plan on creating any programs to attract more diversity then? As such, we haven't done so. I don't think we've seen the need neither. Uh, I think also if you look at, uh, let's say, the scale of uh, different nationalities working within our different portfolio companies, also there, we see that it's quite mixed without proactively targeting specific groups or specific international backgrounds. That's really interesting. I wonder if that's because you do go in quite early and it kind of takes away this fear of a VC. It might be so. What we also do, I think out of the 18, there's 16, I guess, who have a first-time CEO. So it also means we try to give young teams and young people the opportunity to try at least, or at the start, to be the CEO, to be the one uh, responsible for the company. It also means that you have a broader pool of people out of which you can recruit or who can make that jump. If you go only for the serial entrepreneurs, you're already more in a limited pool, which might be maybe more dominated by male than female candidates. So being that early, giving the chance to younger teams probably also helps to boost that ratio. Yeah. My next question is one that we mostly touched on already, which was Cubic has grown to um, 60 partners, all of them in Belgium. I think originally I asked you if you plan to maintain this local focus, which I think you've answered. So I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit. Would you look for any European partners purely for the financials, say a European investment fund or someone, a bank from France or Belgium, rather than only focusing on Belgium? So the 16 partners, that's what we call our knowledge partners. So I think for them, we'd like to keep this local focus. I think in terms of investors, our broader LP base, obviously there, it's the 16 partners who invested a bit in the fund, but the bulk of our LPs and the bulk of the funding is coming from other partners, which are institutional private investors. Obviously there, we're not limited to Belgium. We're open to funding or to investors coming from abroad as well. That explains why I met you in London as well. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> is there enough government support in Belgium for funds like Cubic? It's also a difficult question without uh, <laughs> without stepping on toes. <laughs> there could obviously always be more. I think that's fair to say. We do have institutional investors, governmental, regional investors as well. So the regional, the Belgian National Wealth Fund, are also investors in Cubic. So I guess in that sense, we cannot complain. We also see them sometimes as co-investors in some of our portfolio deals. So they are active in the early stage seen as well but obviously it can always be more <laughs> yeah is there a good regulatory framework for a fund like yourself to operate i guess there is 
there's obviously quite some more administrative burdens, but as a regular, in the end, we're organized as a regular VC fund. We have our specific focus and our quite targeted investment scope. But apart from that, we're regulated and set up like most VC funds in Belgium, for which there is a framework to which we can adhere. And apart from some of the administrative hurdles, it is rather straightforward, I guess, to implement. I think the administrative hurdles is something that everyone struggles with, whether they're in the US or in Belgium. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And I guess they're, they just keep on growing, like you know, anti-money laundering regulations, uh, GDPR, uh, all those things. Now it's just adding on without adding a lot of value, I guess, for a fund like ours. Is there any support that you wish the government did offer? Well, there's quite some schemes in terms of grants and subsidies which are available. I think what sometimes is not very easy, and that's more on the portfolio level of things, is to really have a clear view on what is available in terms of subsidies, how to apply for it. Sometimes the mix of what is you know, like government or subsidized and what a grant can cover versus which type of private investment is still needed is not always that straightforward as well. So having sometimes better visibility on the you know, scale of opportunities there are, I think could be quite helpful. I want to look at your own career as well. You worked for a Boston Consulting Group, Energy Infrastructure Group, Flexis. You were in corporate venturing for Bicard before joining Cubic. What convinced you to join Cubic? I think what pleases me the most and what makes Cubic unique as well is the very big diversity of deals we see in portfolio companies and deal flow we see. It's very broad sector-wise. It's working with young teams, typically you know, from almost from scratch, apart from obviously the big part of research, which they already did. But in terms of building a company, setting up business plans, it's starting from scratch and it's having a hands-on impact as from day one. I think comparing it to working for the bigger companies where you're always a smaller piece in a very big machine. That's something which appeals me most within a fund like Cubic. To be very involved, to be able to be very hands-on as well, and have a very broad diversity of projects which should be managed or which you uh, look after. Is there anything that you would say to someone who is starting out in this area today in University Venture Capital? Well, I think it's a very interesting, challenging ecosystem. I think it's also challenging in the sense that you're somewhere on the edge between the more, let's say, bureaucratic sometimes way of thinking, the way of doing research, where typically there's more time or the end goal can be more fuzzy just because it is research. And then translating that into an economically viable project is not that straightforward. Then I think you have to have a good understanding of both worlds, both the world of academia and the world of research and how people are meant to operate within such a world and also the more business side of things what a customer a company a partner would expect from you so in a lot of discussions and a lot of the projects we see it's also sometimes it just takes time to get the teams to the way of thinking of a corporate or vice versa to get a corporate understand why certain developments still need to be done but you do already need or want to be involved at the early stage so I guess a lot of the work is also you know, being a bit of a translator between different worlds, which makes it challenging, but it also makes that you need quite some patience as well sometimes. Is there something that you would change about how university venturing is done? It's a quite broad question. I think what we see working with a number of different universities, they all have a very different DNA in terms of how they value 
their knowledge in terms of how they want to be remunerated for the knowledge they contribute to the different companies. I guess it would be easy if there would be a standard framework of how to valorize IP, for example, or how to just contribute IP. Again, on the other side, if there would be frameworks for everything, then probably my life wouldn't be as uh, <laughs> as interesting or the projects wouldn't be as exciting as they are today. So, uh, Does that mean that when you have portfolio companies, they tend to just come out of one institutions rather than two? We have some that are, let's say, coming out of a single institution. More and more universities and institutions are working together as well. So typically they have multiple, or the IP has multiple fathers and mothers. What we do see, however, and that's something which I think has certainly improved, is that for most of those multi-university or multi-partner projects, there are clear agreements in place on who will be taking the lead in negotiations, who is you know, responsible for the let's say, doing the facing towards investors and who is more following from the background. So I guess it's probably a lot of difficult discussions which also take place without us having to be involved, for example. So I think that's something where we also see that these collaborations have become a lot more mature over the years. That does lead me on to my next question, which was, can you give me some examples of portfolio companies? Sure. We have a lot of them, so uh, <laughs> we have a lot of interesting ones, I guess. I guess maybe some of the ones in which I'm involved, I think Custom.Dot, for example, is one of the companies which still today is in relatively early stage. The company is developing quantum dots, which can be used for color conversion in, in displays, computer displays, but in the future, probably also the microLED-based displays. It's a company developing new material, which in the end will need to be brought to the market, for which there still is quite some way to go to, in the end, end up in devices, in consumer devices as well, which we will all be using. I think it holds great potential. They're, they're one of the few companies today which is able to make these quantum dots without any cadmium inside, so which is one of the products and But it is one of those companies where you see the whole development trajectory and then also the getting specced in the final applications does take quite some time. But apart from them, we're also invested in companies like Centea, which is making fiber optic interrogators at a significantly lower price points than the more bulky systems which are around today. So applications in wind energy, in machine monitoring of bearings or large infrastructure. I think more maybe on the medtech life science side, we have companies in our portfolio like Indigo developing an implantable device for continuous glucose monitoring, which could improve or help a lot of diabetes patients to get a better view on their glucose levels without having to wear any externally visible device. We have companies active in the water segment as well, like Bluefoot Membranes, making membranes which are backwashable, so in the end we'll have a much lower total cost of ownership. And that's one of the companies where I think passed for these first growth stages, which is a company which is now selling in larger projects also abroad and seeing already quite some installations being active throughout the world. So it's one of the companies I'd say more advanced in our Cubic 2 portfolio. And maybe a last one, it's maybe the one which is more open for imagination. The first investment we recently completed in our third fund is in a company called Sway Photonics which is actually developing a specific holographic chip, which will enable true holographies. It will be the chip and the algorithms around it that will be developed, that I guess the end products, which you can imagine working with true holography without the need for specific glasses and all these things are also quite interesting. 
Yeah. Sorry for Tony. I came across, is it IMEC and Ghent University? Is it those two? IMEC and uh, University of Brussels. Brussels. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing Tom van Houten was singing their praises. <laughs> Took quite some time to get that, uh, to the closing of that file, but uh, glad we made it. I can only imagine. <laughs> that brings us almost to the end. Is there anything else we haven't talked about you want people to know? I've thought about that question before, <laughs> but I think this pretty much covers most things. Awesome. No call to action. Well, I guess you're still raising money. So if there are any investors out there. Yeah, sure. That's always welcome. Anybody interested in the Belgian landscape or the Belgian university scene, they're obviously welcome to reach out. Amazing. Cedric, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. Pleasure was mine. Thanks, Siri. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GUVenturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do